Happy Father's Day, everyone. Happy Father's Day. Yes, I have to say that because uh, women always get all this appreciation and attention on Mother's Day, but fathers uh, oftentimes are like, you know. Um, so we're going to actually appreciate the fathers later on uh, in our message, after our, actually after at the end of the service today. But I just want to acknowledge that we've got some great fathers here, uh, men who have, none of us are perfect, um, who really care about families, who have really invested uh, in community as well. So I just want to acknowledge that and just uh, thank all the fathers here as well. Um, I always think about my dad on Father's Day, partly because that's what you do, but just all the more so as, as you get older as a person, you look back at your childhood and you realize you missed a lot. Uh, there were a lot of times when I thought, man, if I just had a different dad, dad was a little cooler in this way, a little more aware of things in this way, um, who could have prepared me a little better in that way. But, you know, you don't get to choose your dad. In fact, you, sometimes some of us have great dads, and we don't even realize it. Some of us have really, you know, painful experiences with our father. But even then, there are things that, that we've learned so much that we could not have uh, without our dads. And um, I look back and I realize, I always felt like my dad didn't give me enough. Like, I, I didn't know how to talk to girls. Because like, I couldn't even talk to him about that. He would always say, no girlfriend. That's, that's all I got, right? I didn't know how to like, prepare for college and life. Um, he would just say, well, I, you know, go talk to somebody else. Cause, uh, but I, I just I realized how much he invested in me, just thinking back. He taught me so many life skills just, just by having, like, making me do work. I realized that, that. At first it was, I thought, what am I, some kind of family slave? But later on, everything was so valuable because of the time he would invest. He taught me how to like work on a car. Like um, back then, cars had carburetors, and we had to actually change the the the, the sizing and the, and, the, and the spacing and the carburetor for specific things. Change the spark plugs out, change the brakes, change the oil. And like these days, I'm like, that's I I, I think all of that helped with all my like problem solving. I carry around this Leatherman. Because like sometimes there's something broken and I, I just feel this confidence, I can fix it, you know? I MacGyver things because my dad MacGyver things all the time. Out of nothing, he would weld things and make things. And be like, and I, I think back and uh, it'd be cooler to have a different kind of dad, but in many ways, all of that was training for me. He trained me in all kinds of life skills that I had no idea I would need. But he also trained me in just a lifestyle of godliness. Um, he was always so faithful, not only just in church life, but uh, in his devotional life. I would catch him in the morning praying and uh, reading the scriptures by himself. Just, there was something about him, as imperfect as he was, he was still a first generation Asian dad, you know, would say this a lot, I said no, a lot. A, a lot of that, but at the same time, there was a life in him. And he would share some of these stories that came down to me. And I would reflect on them. He would share stories of how when he was a younger man and he would want to take care of his family as a father, he was a taxi driver in Korea. And he would like uh, count all of his makings and realize that Sunday was a golden opportunity. There were very few cars out. And so he could really make money on Sundays. But he chose not to, to be a faithful man. But he was wrestling with that in his head, and all fathers do in many ways, especially if you're thinking about you're pro providing for your family and he said, you know what, I'm just going to try it. I'm gonna, I know, God, you won't be happy with me, but I, I'm going to make some money today. And so he actually didn't go to church, and he went out on his, uh, looking for fairs. And he found this whale of a fair. This guy was basically saying, I need to get out to this you know, town really far away. I'll pay you double, uh, not only for you to get out there and come back. And he was like, that was a ton of money for him. And he was thinking to himself, I made the right decision. I made the right decision. 
Halfway into that uh, ride, a tire blew. And so that's okay, because my dad, he could actually you know, change out the tire. You know? But then another you know, few miles, they go down, and another tire blew. But this time, it was completely shredded, and he was stuck. And the guy was so angry, he couldn't go anywhere, so he didn't give him any money, and my dad was stuck overnight until somebody else can come in this podium town, pick him up, and he had to pay money for the tires, too. And he said that, that whole, all, all night long, he was thinking, oh, what, is, what a mistake I made. And God was talking to him about what it means to be faithful, not just to go to church, but to be faithful as a person and to follow his ways and to trust him. And actually, that story and the way he lived really kind of was so valuable to me. I got trained, not only in life skills, but in godliness. And my dad is not perfect. I can, I can uh, write a book about, in some ways, uh, how he was not. But, as my children would probably, and my daughter would say about me too, but that's one thing I'm so thankful for, the training. And I think all of us have experienced some of that, whether it's through discipline, whether it's correction, whether it's through them just spending time and teaching you how to throw a ball, teaching you how to play, teaching you how to do these kinds of things. Um, well, we're in a, a, a long 11-week sermon series, going, walk, working through verse by verse in the book of 1 Timothy. And the, the, the theme here, the overarching theme that we're actually describing is, uh, in this book, we get the sense that there is such a strong emphasis there in this book on working on the core, the core principles of life in Christ, of integrity, of character, of faithfulness that we find in the book of 1 Timothy. Because in the end, that's what gives you strength as an individual. That's what gives you strength as a community, to actually live well, to live for God, but to live well. There are a lot of references here of people who shipwreck their faith. They lose their faith because there's so much happening in this world. But if a person or if a people, if a community would, would, would follow through on this core training, you know, staying, staying true to the truths of God, um, working out their faith very carefully, there's something, there's a strength that comes, there's a value that comes, and we're going to be, uh, reflect on that as we go through First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I do need to remark that because we're going through verse by verse, it gets a little heavy. Most people, uh, when we're pa pastors, especially when we're preaching, we take the, the key verse, and we don't give you the, the rest of the stuff, we don't take all the connections for you, but we're doing that because it's going to help you to value and make sense of what's being said. It's not just pulling things from everywhere, but actually we're trying to stay really closely with the text. And so what first hopefully doesn't make much sense, like why is he talking about this? Hopefully, as we understand what they're going through, it'll make more sense as we reflect on how we are supposed to appropriate this and make sense of this. Well, uh, as you heard, First um, Timothy chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 10, verse 1 starts by saying, Paul telling Timothy and the church in Ephesus the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith, following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So he's actually just kind of finished a section, he's starting a new section, and he's referencing one again, one of the problems that they're having at the church in Ephesus. There are people who are teaching false things, false way of life, false things about God. And you would imagine, oh, everybody can think what they want to think, it doesn't matter. But actually he says no. This is how critical this truth and this life is, that some not only will ab are abandoning faith, what is behind it? What is behind it? It's actually deceiving spirits and things taught by, by demons. The other translations would say doctrine of demons. Okay, that's kind of scary. And I would have thought 
scary demonic you know teaching would be like Ouija board stuff and like you know you're you're calling in like these these uh, demons from from uh, from the other world. Interesting enough, if you pay attention, actually it says this is the nature of their demonic teaching. They forbid forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created is to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. The nature, interestingly, of this deceiving spirit and the, the things taught by demons is actually has to do with their sexual appetites, their relational life, their covenant life, and their physical appetites, what you eat. You would never think that food actually would be the thing that trips you up. But actually, look at Paul. He talks about this in Corinth, too. It act, people have to know the truth. Some people were saying, you can eat anything you want. You, don't have, you can eat it anywhere you want. Other people saying, no. It's confusing for us, and we're like, why does it matter? But it's actually a reminder that the daily stuff of life can be things, and we can appropriate them. We can live our daily life, our daily appetites in such a way where we are living with God for God, or we are following a different assumption, a different worldview perspective, where actually it's leading us away from God. The teachings here are actually a form of false asceticism. Don't do this, don't do that. Okay? As a way of saying, that looks like you're godly. But in fact, just saying no to all these good things is not a godly thing. Some people don't know because, and in fact, some people are teaching these things. They're teaching uh, these things taught by demons and um, so on and so forth. And it says that such teachings come from those with who, uh, from those who have, are hypocritical liars whose consciousness have been seared as in hot iron. This is what it's saying. People who know better are actually lying, and they're intentionally teaching these things for bad reasons. The language that we would use is there's collusion happening, that the leaders of that church know better, but instead they are, they are allying themselves with deceiving spirits for their own gain. You're going to see here, there's, there's later on, you can talk about godliness in such a way. This, this one word that's really important is such a way to say that some people have a false godliness that has no power about it, and a godliness that they're using for financial gain. Okay? But the situation here is people are actually following false truths and basing their life off of false truths. And this is actually really important. Verse 4, he continues on saying, this is the truth. God made the world good. And it is broken. But just saying no to certain things doesn't necessarily make you godly. There's an interesting aspect of godliness where if you give thanksgiving to it and you consecrate it by word and prayer, then life and this world gets to not only be enjoyable, you live it well. So he continues on verse 6. And Paul tells Timothy and, uh, and the Ephesian church, by the way, the book of 1 Timothy is, is a semi-private book because it was read to Timothy in front of the whole church. And it's semi-private in the sense that it's actually semi-public as well for us too. Saying to Timothy, if you point out these things, watch your life and your doctrine closely. That's what you're going to find out in the next verses section. But if you, if you point out these things, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus. And watch how he kind of, Paul's really focusing on the truths the teachings, and the life that follows. He's saying, Timothy was nourished on the truths of the faith and the good teaching that he has followed. 
He's built a life that knows who God is and has followed through on how to live pleasing to him and how to live well. He has to remind Timothy and others, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. So what's going on in that setting is all kinds of ideas of this is the way to live. You, 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 know, you, you follow this kind of lifestyle. You know, paleo has come out. You live paleo and everything's going to be great. Your body, you won't have cancer and so on and so forth. Uh, a new fad will come out. There's all kinds of things that were distracting them from actually saying, no, there is a specific way to live, a specific aspect of who God is that we get to echo and live well that they were not following. And so Paul has to tell Timothy, don't pay attention to all that junk out there. There's so much junk. Train yourself to be godly. Now, if you had to answer that question, what does it mean to be godly? What is godliness? Nobody talks about it. It's very hard to figure this out, in fact. Um, the only expression we have in our culture is cleanliness is next to godliness. Is that what godliness is? Is being clean? Right? Being ordered and structured. Uh, I actually even saw an article, it's kind of funny, that's saying, oh, it is biblical because in the Old Testament, you didn't want to be unclean, and therefore cleanliness is next to godliness. We have no idea in our culture what godliness is. Why it matters. Who cares? If somebody says, hey, train yourself, put the time and energy to focus. If somebody says, hey, you should go on a marathon, this is what you arrive at. You get so much healthy and stronger. You get the runner's high and, and so on and so forth. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But if somebody says, train yourself to be godly, why? We have so many other things to pay attention to. We don't even know what it means to be godly. The dictionary is actually not bad in describing what it means to be godly. Um, it's an adjective, and you can even say godlier. I'm godlier than you, godliest. I'm the godliest. I don't know. It's kind of funny. Uh, the adjective says, somebody who's godly conforms to the laws and the wishes of God because they're devout and they're pious. They care about who God is and how you're supposed to live. They show it by the way they live. They conform to it. Okay? Um, some of the synonyms are religious, saintly, holy, righteous, good. Antonyms are wicked or impious. So what does it mean? Somebody who is godly knows God, loves God, are devoted to God, so it shows up in the way they live. They know the truth about God. They live the truth about God. And so they're godly. This word godliness shows up quite a bit, actually, um, in the scriptures, in 1 Timothy especially. So you're going to see it repeated again and again. Uh, if you were with us from the beginning, we we're supposed to even pray for kings and those in authority so that we could live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is what God's aim is. Later on, we saw actually last week when we were looking at, uh, at, at this one verse where it says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He's going to actually tell you what where you get godliness, where it comes from, the spring of it, okay? He has to tell us in this passage, I'm just going to go through it quickly, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, rather train yourself to godliness. He's going to give us this incentive. We're saying that physical training has some value, limited value. Godliness training has incredible value for this life and the next, okay? He's going to point out that later on you'll see that there's this constant friction between the people of a, cor of a corrupt mind, people who are not godly, who don't care about God, 
and who are twisted in their truth, they have been robbed of the truth. And they think godliness means financial gain. Okay? Then he has to give an incentive. But godliness with contentment is a great gain. So you, you see he's talking about godliness quite a bit as if this is the thing you've got to work on. If you don't work on this, you're missing it quite a bit. In fact, the assumption is if you are not training yourself to be godly, there's a danger that you would lose your faith. You get shipwrecked, that you would twist around and, in fact, lose God. And these are what the people have done. Now, Timothy is supposed to be a man of God, to flee from all of that and instead pursue righteousness and godliness. Okay? And they're told, he said, later on in 2 Timothy, he says, these people, they have a form of godliness. They look like they're godly. They're saying no to marriage. They're saying no to certain foods. But in fact, they have denied its power. It's not a right godliness. It's not a real godliness. In fact, um, he says, it has nothing to do with them. So my quick definition or description of what godliness is for us to maybe hold on to is when you really love God, when you know him, you have a relationship with him, guess what? His truth becomes important to you. What he says, how he were supposed to live in response to that truth becomes so valuable that you live it. If you don't know the truth, you cannot be godly. If you don't know God, you can't be like him. If you are unwilling or don't know how to or not trained yourself to live it out, you're still not godly. You have a lot of head knowledge, but not life. And so Paul has to constantly tell Timothy and the church, okay, train yourself to be godly. Now, sometimes my dad would, the way he would train me is like, just do it. I'm like, I don't know. Just do it. I don't know. I feel like I have all this expectation and a lot, a lot of resourcing and help. You ever feel like this? Right? I can't do this. How can you expect me to do this? This is impossible. I, I don't know. It's like, you know, sometimes we ask people to, to, to pray or people to, to lead and like, oh, it's like, it feels like this, right? Like, I can't be godly. I don't know what, anything to do with this, right? Wouldn't you love to have a personal trainer? It's not saying train yourself to be godly as in do it all by yourself. Think about it. Paul spent all his time with Timothy, shared his life, mentored him, discipled him, and this is an aspect of Paul doing it with Timothy. But he's saying, I can't do this for you. In fact, there has to be something in you that takes on this with energy, with passion, with devotion. Anything really significant that changes you, that develops you, if you don't take it on yourself, if it's always somebody else, whether it's a spouse that's nagging you or parents or a sense of guilt or shame, that never produces godliness. It's when you see, this is so valuable, I want to, I can see that I can become like this. You put the energy, you put, you, 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 you put your heart into it, okay? And Paul has to say, physical training has some value, but godliness training is like that. It's difficult. It takes commitment. It takes strategy. It takes time and support. But if you realize how valuable godliness training is, you're going to invest in it. Godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying, saying that deserves full acceptance. This is interesting. He says, that is why we labor and strive. Because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. 
When you really know God, love God, really believe, you put all your hope in God, there is a labor and a striving. There's a fight that emerges. Because this one is so valuable, you won't give it up. And so he's saying, train yourself to be godly. Don't miss out on this. It makes sense of Philippians chapter 2.12. And that's that verse that sounds really, whoa, that, that doesn't sound right. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like, oh, I got to work really hard because maybe I won't make it. Okay, I got I to work so hard that I establish myself and I don't have to be afraid anymore because I've worked so hard. No. That language of work out your salvation is kind of like this. We labor and strive because why? We already have hope. We know where we are headed. We know what is coming. We know that salvation is coming. But it, you can't be passive about it. You can't let somebody else nag you into it. You can't just you know, try to train for a marathon and skip your long runs every, every long run. You, you, you know, when you have hope, you know you're in it. You're registered. Guess what? Um, you're going to train. And there's a beautiful emphasis here on godliness that I think we miss a lot. That we put our efforts, this requires our efforts. Because we put our efforts other places, we don't actually have this real live relationship with God. Well, I want to move back and try to unpack a little. Where does godliness come? How do you grow in godliness? How do you train in godliness? The next passage has a lot more information on that, but here is a little hint. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And you would have thought, follow this three-step process, right? But instead, we get a hymn, a hymn that everybody knew, a song, a song that is filled with the truth about who Christ is, what he has done. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, and was believed on in the world and taken up in glory. Like, how, how is true godliness sourced here? The word for mystery is not a word that's saying that if you just figure it out, if you're smart enough, you can put the clues together. It's a way of saying, you couldn't have, but the curtain has been opened and you see it. Ah. The mystery of the true source of godliness is, do you know who Christ is? what he has done, how he lived, and what his plan is. Now you can base your life and build your life around Christ, the truths of Christ. That's why Timothy has been nourished on the truths of the faith and the good teaching you have followed. He was nourished on the reality of this is who Christ is. While we were still sinners, enemies to God, God, he died for us. And now we have to get to live this life with him because we know in the end, he's going to come back. I thought about this. Why is godliness valuable for this life and the next? Because, in fact, you can, in some ways, kind of, you can kind of mail it in as a Christian. And you can just barely make it into heaven. Why is it valuable? I'm wondering, when we actually make our way into heaven... How will God recognize? Because there are places where somebody says, Lord, Lord, I did all these miracles for you, right? I did all these great things for you. And God says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Does it mean that God never recognized them? No, it means 
in who they were, they looked nothing like Christ. They did it for all the wrong reasons. What does it mean that godliness is valuable for the life to come? I think this is how God recognizes us when he sees us, sees himself in us. Something has been put to work. The seed form of the Spirit and Christ is now revealing itself. And when push comes to shove, we act like Christ in our living, in our eating, in our relationships, even our sexual lives, in our giving and our forgiving. Something of Christ is being built on because we know the truth. We have focused our life on the truth and we follow the good teaching. I think it's one of the reasons why uh, the enemy is really trying to dumb down Christians. Um, you want a sermon that is just really kind of low on information, high on inspiration, just get you out of there. Uh, it used to be that the church was so valuing the church, the, the truth. The Puritans would have, I've read those sermons, three-hour sermons, two-hour sermons. Can you imagine that, right? Uh, i got to talk really fast just to make this under 30 minutes. You know, I'm going to like, right? They would, they would go through these long, you know, treatises. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, if you grew up in the Puritan times, you'd just be dying. But no, why? It was so important for them. And so here is a modern-day Puritan. He's my professor in, 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 a, in seminary. His name is J.I. Packer. And he wrote this book called Knowing God. And everybody's like, oh, it's like a million copies sold. That's a Christian classic. A lot of people have it. But they don't read it because the first five pages in, it's like, oh, this is so dry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right? Um, this is about God, who he is. Well, why don't we care? It's because we don't value the truth. We think physical training has some value, but we have no idea how important it is to know who God is, know the plan. That second book, if you want to kind of dig in, is called Quest for Godliness. It's his homage to the Puritans because J.I. Packer loves the Puritans. Um, reflecting on John Owen, on uh, Richard Baxter, on um, Jonathan Edwards, and how they loved the truth and appropriated the truth, how they lived for the truth. And so if this is important to you and you've never heard of these books, think about it. We're called to train ourselves to be godly, and we do have a personal trainer. Not only those who are doing this and are willing to, to, to encourage us, and, and like, like the Pauls to the Timothys. Guess what? Who is our primary personal trainer? It is our Father in heaven, who knows our potential, who knows, who recognizes himself in us. Okay? It's like Bruce Lee's dad looking at his son and saying, I know you can be a kung fu you know, genius because you have my DNA. Have you seen this kid? Right, Yusei Imai, it's a Japanese kid. That's five years old, okay? This kid is ridiculous, okay? Watch this. He's coming. Here he goes. Watch this.
One intense kid. Anyway, you get the idea. He didn't learn that. He didn't get this way by casually thinking, oh, I'd like to be like Bruce Lee. You imagine the training, okay? And he didn't do it by himself either. Somebody must have believed this kid's like going to be a kung fu genius, <laughs> right? Well, you could tell he's not just doing it. He is he's all in. He loves Bruce Lee, right? He trained himself, but he also got the support and the encouragement and the challenging of others because this was so valuable to him. I think there's a place where we get confused sometimes. We're not supposed to earn our salvation. And now we are so, you know, we are put at ease. God loved us. He did all the work for us. And so we can think we can just can kind of cruise our way through. But love devotes. It's the, per the person who loves someone devotes themselves. Okay? If your spouse doesn't put any energy into wanting to know you and take care of you and so on and so forth, then you have to question, do you really love me anymore? Right? If your parent doesn't even care about where the kid is, what kind of parent are they? Now, that relationship's already, been, it's already there. You can't earn it, right? But guess what? When there's a love in a relationship, passion calls you to actually invest. And here, this is a reminder that we get to go through this life looking forward to the next, training ourselves to be godly, being trained. We have a personal trainer. God himself, who knows what we're capable of, what we're going to look like, that when he's going to recognize us, we're going to be face to face, and we're going to look just like him. And he is so passionate to train us, if we would be able to, using every tool that's there, even tragedy, even hardship. I'm going to finish with Hebrews chapter 12, where this is a reflection on a good father, an attentive father who already knows the potential of their child, loves a child, this is what he'll do. Saying, endure hardship as discipline, not simply just correction, but training. God is treating you as his children, but what children are not trained by their father? And if you are not trained, and everyone undergoes training, every child does, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who trained us, and we respected them for it. Later on, you begin to respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace, godliness, for those who have been trained by it. I want you to bow your heads with me as you pray.